0: Uh, welcome everyone, thanks so much for, for coming tonight and uh, welcome to Dwell if you've not been before our sort of afternoon extra uh, service. And this time we're doing this Bible overview, we call it His Story, because we've seen that no matter where we are in the Bible, it's all about Jesus. It is His story. He is the King we worship and uh, we're going to see Him in these pages. And um, perhaps the reason you're here tonight is because you're tr- intrigued by the advert this morning, where Matt I think said this is where our Bible knowledge gets hazy. You know, we kind of know there's kind of an exodus and then there's King David and then Solomon and then um, uh, stuff happens. And, and then the Bible comes, becomes this confusing, non-chronological mess. Uh, each book of the Bible is in a different order at a different time and we all suddenly get confused of what exactly is happening, when and why. And hopefully this session this week and the session next week will really, really help us. And again, we're going to see again and again, it's all about Jesus. So no matter where we're on scripture, it's all about him. Uh, so this week we're going to be covering, the fact, we're going to say for the next three weeks we'll be covering the new covenant, but how it is talked about before the exile. Next week we're going to talk about the new covenant, how it's talked about in and after the exile, and then the week after that, finally, with the New Testament, how the new covenant is ushered in. So we're having sort of three sort of sessions on this uh, particular covenant. And uh, you'll see uh, from your handouts, we're going to begin... By looking at life in the United Kingdom, not this United Kingdom, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, but the United Kingdom uh, under King David and his successors. And just by way of recap, um, let, let's remember what we saw last time. Um, we saw last time how every single blessing which came to God's people was mediated through their king. And that is because of this Davidic covenant and we saw last time, didn't we, how because of David's extraordinary obedience, God made this promise that there'd always be a king on the throne. No matter how useless or screwed up your various offspring are, they'll get disciplined. But I'm never going to preach this promise to you because of your obedience to me. And so for all who are in union with David, all who are under the rule of King David, there's going to be blessing forever. That's what the Davidic covenant was like. But... Turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. Because we're going to see that the kings of Israel, as they sort of become the main characters now, alongside the prophets, that the people themselves kind of drift to the background because they're represented by their king. And so everything is tied up with their king. However, the kings themselves, it isn't just um, universally easy for them. They can't just rest on the laurels because they're under the Davidic covenant. They're also... Various laws pertaining to kings. And in Deuteronomy 17, remember, this is the sermon Moses gave just before Israel entered the promised lands. Well, he said there are certain laws which kings must obey. So read with me verse 14. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it. And you say, let's set a king over us like all the other nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king, the Lord your God, chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more horses. For the Lord told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray and he must not accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. When he takes the throne of the kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. That's going to take ages, isn't it? Writing out by hand the entire five, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, taken from that, from the Levitical priests, it is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then... He and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So on one hand, unconditional. Because of David, You're, there's always going to be a king on the throne, blessing forever. But on the other hand, it seems conditional on the individual king's ability to obey and keep this law. And do you notice there's three particular dangers. We might call them the three G's. Um, the three dangers facing kings will be guns, which in the ancient Near East is basically horses. Guns. Girls and gold. Guns, girls and gold. Beware looking for your power in the amount of horses you've had. Watch out for guns. Beware and being led astray by, by, by foreign women as you accumulate many wives yourselves through political alliances. Girls and beware of gold that you begin to locate your security there. Those are the three things kings in particular to watch out for. And so we're going to see this Bible over you, see the diagram there on your sheet. There's this tension, therefore, between the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. If the kings represent God's people, if they're unconditionally going to be blessed, if as long as they're in union with David, they've also got to maintain this law. Well, how will that play out? What are going to see? Two things to notice then. An obedient king will lead to a blessed people. So let's uh, pick it up where we left up last time. 1 Kings 4. And uh, let's read about um, Solomon at the beginning of his reign. And uh, it might help us to fill in this box. We've been tracing this theme through, haven't we? God's people, God's place, God's presence. Well, how will you fill it in? As I read verses 20 and 21. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. What does that remind you of? The Abrahamic covenant, absolutely right, well done. They ate, they drank, they were happy. And Solomon ruled all over the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. So, God's people, if you want to fill in these boxes, what are they like at this time? Well, they're numerous. A son on the seashore. And we should be jumping up and and saying, yes, God's kept his promise to Abraham. They're at peace. No one's warring with them because David, um, Solomon's uh, father, had, had won all the wars. They, they, Solomon just gets to reap the benefit as a king of peace. Uh, and all because he is a king over them. Uh, what is God's place like? It is secure. It is expanded. The, the, the borders of, of Solomon's kingdom are as big as they ever will be. In the Old Testament. And what about God's presence? Well, look at, look at chapter 8. Come on with me. Chapter 8, verse 20. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised. And I've built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I provided a place there for the ark in which the covenant of the Lord has made for ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. So GC, you see God's presence is in and amongst them. They have built the temple. The Ark of the Covenant is in their midst. They are blessed because God is with them. Okie dokie. So that sounds great, doesn't it? Um, and uh, we, if you we want to sort of uh, see some art along this way, here's, here's an enjoyable piece by uh, Andreas Brugger. And here is, here is Solomon. You see these enormous blueprints. And, and Solomon is clearly the one who's... who's um, David's the one who drew up this blueprint, but Solomon's the guy who, who managed to build at uh, the temple uh, in in his lifetime and uh, and at this point it just looks great we have an obedient king and therefore uh, the people are blessed but it all goes wrong turn with me to chapter 10 flip over the page and you can probably guess what happens can't you you can probably guess I forgot to mention another thing about God's presence is that the nations are drawn uh, to Solomon. So the Queen of Sheba uh, visits Solomon. The ends of the earth are, are coming to God's people for blessing and wisdom. And again, it looks like a high point in chapter 10, but then it, it starts going wrong in verse 14. Just read verse 14 with me. What do you notice here? Chapter 10, verse 14. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666. Talents, not including the revenues from the merchants, traders, and all the Arabian kings and governors and territories. Uh, what are the three G's again? Gold, 666, six, six. not a great number. Uh, verse 26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. I wonder where he got them from. Let's read on. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in uh, the chariots. He had chariot cities. He had cities built for chariots, that mental, uh, which he kept also had with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful in sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from, ding, 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 Egypt and elsewhere. It doesn't look good, does it? Gold, guns. And now look at chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however love many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. It's, it's almost so predictable, isn't it? it Guns, girls, gold, Solomon's heart is led astray. He, he is simultaneously one of the greatest kings of Judah. And, and yet he's the beginning of the rot where it begins uh, to set in. And in, in that very chapter, in, in chapter 11, uh, God promises that because of this idolatry, because his heart is led astray, the United Kingdom, not of England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, but the United Kingdom of, of the 12 tribes would be ripped apart uh, between north and south and um, God says a guy called Jeroboam an Ephraimite would then become king over the northern ten tribes whereas uh, Solomon's son would only rule over uh, the southern tribes and, and that's what happens civil war uh, kicks off and so Jeroboam uh, becomes the king of the north uh, after Solomon dies and Rehoboam uh, is his son, and you can read about Rehoboam in, in chapter 12, and really he's just a fool. He comes to, comes to the throne early, he, he dismisses all the wise, elderly uh, advisors around him, and puts young men around him, his, his lads, you know, jobs for the lads, and um, he makes cocky boasts, and he, he liked to say, I, I, like, I enjoy this painting by Hans Holbein, the Younger. See, do you see he's pulling out his little finger, he says, I've, I have as much power in my little finger as my father Solomon did. And, and so um, he, uh, he, he makes foolish boasts and he decides to work the people of, uh, people of Judah uh, almost you know, like a slave master. And that, and that as, as a result of his, his stupid and foolish leadership that the, the kingdom is torn into between north and south. Jeroboam then becomes king in the north, Rehoboam of Judah in the south. And this might explain some of the terminology in the Bible, which might confuse us. From this point on, when we read of Israel, it normally refers to the ten northern tribes. And when we hear Judah, it normally refers to the two southern tribes of Judah and, and Benjamin um, in, in the south. Um, so um, I love this diagram. I think you've got it on your sheets. And this is just basically this is such a helpful guide to this entire period of history. And a key to understanding, particularly, are all the different prophets and when they come in. And uh, because you'll notice in our Bibles, they're not in chronological order at all. Um, but let's, let's first of all, let's, chase, let's look at the left side of this diagram. And notice the the northern kings. And you notice on this diagram, they're coloured according to the, their spiritual assessment. In the book of 1 and 2 Kings, at the end of a reign, we're told whether they're a good king or a bad king or a meh kind of king. And all of them, all of the northern kings are bad kings. All of them lead their people to greater and greater wickedness and idolatry. All of them are, are colored in, in black there, all the way through. So under point two then, what is life like in the northern kingdom of Israel? Well, the kings of Israel led their people into evil as they ruled from the capital in Samaria in the north. And uh, the most famous uh, of, of these kings is, is perhaps King Ahab. There he is sitting down um, with weirdly a shaved leg exposed. I, I don't know what, I think the painter is trying, trying to sort of present him as slightly emasculated, but because he's, he's eclipsed almost by his wicked wife, Jezebel, who, who, um, who leads him into further idolatry of the Baals. And there's Elijah at the door. Standing tall and, and ominous, and Ahab's embarrassed of his shaven leg. <laughs> um, not quite sure what's going on there. Um, but the three repeated sins in, in the northern kingdom of Israel at this time are idolatry, to the Baals in particular, the Asherahs, injustice, and presumption. They thought, oh, we've got this great heritage behind us. We're the descendants of all those people God rescued out of Egypt. We have the law. You know, it's all good. We're, God won't destroy us. God, God, God will bear with us forever, I'm sure. There's this presumption, confusing God's extended mercy, confusing that with God's commendation. And so throughout this period, God kept on sending the northern uh, people of Israel prophets, um, famously Elijah. And elijah and, and these prophets kept warning god 's people, in particular warning the kings to lead their people back to the Lord, warning them God has not given up on the northern kingdom of Israel, he keeps pursuing them, and also God is constantly reassuring his people that even amongst this wicked northern kingdom, God will keep a remnant and, and a famous, various famous examples of that, like the widow of Zarephath, you might know um, that story, um, or Naaman, this um, uh, this uh, Syrian uh, soldier who, who comes to be uh, washed by um, by the prophet and, and has received and receives forgiveness. Um, it seems as if even in this really dark time, wickedness reigning, a wicked king reigning, it seems as this God is still preserving a people, and even an international uh, people for Himself. And so the various different prophets at this time, so you can see on your diagram again on the left, the prophets in the north at this time in particular were Amos, Jonah, and Hosea. And these guys were kind of like enforcers, covenant enforcers. And um, my, one of my favourites is Hosea. You might know the prophet Hosea. God tells him to sort of to enact his message. God says, I want you to get married. And Hosea's going like, yes, cool. Who are we going to marry? Who are going to marry? I want you to marry a prostitute. Right, any debate about this? No, I want you to marry a prostitute. I want you to commit to a prostitute and bind yourself to her in marriage. And you know, Hosea does that, gives various children with her, but she runs. She runs away from him. She's a prostitute. She plays the whore and she, uh, she sleeps around with many uh, other men. Uh, naturally, Hosea is heartbroken. And yet then God tells Hosea to then go and take her back, to win her back, to bring her back to himself. It's an extraordinary uh, story. And so all these prophets, Hosea, Amos Choda, they, they kind of had these three sort of repeated themes. Uh, they're threatening covenant curses, threatening destruction, uh, calling God's people back to remember the law, uh, to remember the Lord. Uh, they're calling for repentance, calling for justice. And along the way, these books are quite bleak generally, but all along the way, they're little glimpses of gospel hope. And this site I want you to do in your, your twos or threes, uh, where you are on, on your, in, your, uh, in your groups now. Can you turn me to Hosea chapter 2? I want you to read it and, and then think about well, what themes jump out at you here. What are the things which strike you here about what God promises in Hosea chapter 2? And on this side of the room here, I want you to look at Hosea chapter 3. okay. Quite a short little chapter. And what's strange about these verses here? Okay? Hosea 2, 16 to uh, 20. Hosea 3. What, what intrigues you? What's strange about these, these verses? Okay? Go for it. Okay, should we start this side room? Chap- chapter 2. What, what struck you about, uh, about God's promises here? Yeah, God, so actually the first one God uses it is in the Exodus, um, where God said of his people, you, you'll be my bride, I'll, I'll be your husband. So, so yeah, so Hosea's sort of riffing on that theme, but absolutely right for picking that up. Yeah, anything else struck you guys? Yeah, thank you so much, Morgan. Yeah, the, the, the covenant which God's going to make is going to be cosmic in scale. It's not, God isn't just interested in saving human souls. He's going to redeem all of creation. The animals and, and, the, and, and, and the birds are all are swept up in it. And, and notice um, who's going to be doing this. I will, I will, I will, I will. Which is brilliant if you read Hosea, because every time you comes up, it's bad. <laughs> you're, you're unfaithful, you're this, but I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. God is going to create this new covenant. Uh, he is going to be the faithful husband. And it's gonna, because of that, his faithfulness, oh, it's going it's to restore everything. It's going to be beautiful again. How about this side of the room? Chapter three. What, what jumped out at you? The raisin cakes. <laughs> yeah. So now we know raisin cakes are evil. And the main reason for that is because when you, buy, when you pick up a chocolate chip cookie and you think, this is a chocolate chip cookie, and you go, oh, no, it's a raisin cookie. So here's biblical evidence why that is wicked and wrong. If you're, if you're baking, don't do raisins. Do chocolate chips. It's biblical. Um, that's the main takeaway from tonight's session. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that's not the point. Um, and and what's, what's surprising here about chapter three? Yes. Yeah, the husband, who is the wronged party, pays her back, uh, sorry, buys her back out of his own cost, out of his own money, out of his own pocket. What a great picture of redemption, literal redeeming, rebuying um, back. A uh, picture of what our, our, our saviour, Jesus, would come to do. And what's interesting, remember, who is, who's, who is Hosea writing to, writing for? The northern kingdom. The northern kingdom. And their, their lineage, their kings, are not Davidic. And what is the locus of their hope? Verse 5, a Davidic king. Do you see, even in the north, the hope is still linked to the Davidic covenant. Well, that's just a little glimpse of, of some things going on in the, in the northern kingdom. Um, we, we might know the end of the story. In the end, uh, let's turn uh, to Kings 17. In the end, we might know what happens because of this repeated wickedness, because they could repeatedly didn't not listen to the prophets. Well, God sent uh, this king, Sennacherib, this Assyrian king, uh, to wipe them out. Uh, so chapter 17, let me pick it up and in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah, in Gozen, on the river Habor and in the towns of the Medes. Why did this happen? Verse 7, all this took place. Because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. And so this destruction comes upon them. Look at verse 16 over the page. Continues, they forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and Asherah pole. They bound down to all the starry hosts. They worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And so this is what happens to the northern kingdom of Israel. Because of their wickedness, God wiped them off the map. And at this point, they kind of just drop off the story. Uh, the, the northern kingdom, the, the, uh, their capital, Samaria, uh, gets levelled. Um, they're scattered all around uh, the, the, uh, the Syrian Empire at the time. They're never really properly regathered. Um, those who remained in the land of Samaria, they kind of interbred with the, other gent- with, with the Gentiles there. They became the sort of mongrel people, half-Jew, sort of syncretistic in their beliefs. They became the Samaritans. And now when you read the Gospels, you think, why is Jesus always going to see Samaritans? Why is Jesus always ministering to Samaritans? Well, now you know why. He has not given up on the northern kingdom. And all these prophets to the north, Jesus is fulfilling that mandate, calling them to himself as the Davidic king. God has not promised to finish with Samaria. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, Bill's up sorry. So yes, they are scattered all around because yeah. of the succession of empires and, and kingdoms, yeah. they they kind of, they, they they just yeah they kind of intermixed in. But they, I think they maintained some of their ethnicity. I mean, clearly when Jesus you know met the Samaritan woman at the well, for example, he he you know he had yeah a lot of commonality with her, even though Jews and Samaritans wouldn't normally talk. You know, they had theological differences. They worshipped at Mount Gerizim. Jews worshipped at Mount Zion. There are differences there, but jesus there was a common language, a common understanding of things. I think it's fair to say the Samaritans only um, only considered the first five books of the Bible to be to be scripture. They, they didn't recognise the rest. Um, they only—and and, so—but that, that basis of the Pentateuch was was enough commonality for Jesus to call them back. Um, so yeah, I think you know there weren't. Considered a completely different people. They're still considered the remnant of the north, the north, northern tribes. Yes, it, there are two exiles, which is, yeah, we, we're going to yeah, come on to the that. Theory yeah. Theory. We're going to come to that. Spoilers, Bill, spoilers. Um, and, but Assyria itself, the wicked empire of Assyria, which of course Jonah went to preach against hilariously in Nineveh um, and accidentally called them to repentance, um, well, they then unrepented later. And Nahum, the, the other lot, who is the final northern kingdom prophet, he, he proclaimed against the, uh, the fall, uh, pro- proclaimed against Assyria, Assyria uh, prophesying Nineveh's final destruction. We'll pause there for Q ; A. John want to tell the person next to you? Uh, where we're we going at very fast, um, deliberately, so. Uh, so please do uh, anything I can clarify, and let's turn this person next to you and we can help each other in a minute. OK, It was kicks off. What was the event which caused the split? Sorry, I wasn't clear. It was Rehoboam's stupidity. Um, and basically, Rehoboam worked worked the king the, the the kingdom like you know like it was his. He he uh, he worked them too hard. He, he dismissed he dismissed the elderly advisors, saying, "You don't need to you know ask ask for so many taxes. You, you, you don't need to work them so hard." And but his young advisors, saying, who his mates, saying, "Nah, come on, we could be greater. We could do more." And and um, you know I have this much power, in my little finger. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a tyrant. If Solomon worked you hard, I'm going to work you with whips made of scorpions. You, you know, he, he was he was a cruel, stupid man, and because of his stupidity, the kingdom split. But in the chapter before that, God said the kingdom's going to split, and and half it's well, more than half it's going to go to the, to Jeroboam, this chap in the north. But Jeroboam's line didn't do much better. Thank you. Yes, great question, it, and it requires a whole talk to give a satisfactory <laughs> answer. to So, Jay's question is, you know, the in in the the common description of of women in in this period of history is often like temptresses and you know draw or prost- or, or, or prostitutes and you know it's sort of like it's negative um, characterization and what first question is is that is that a snippet of the whole is, is that is basically God saying in scriptures all women are like this <laughs> all women are temptresses and all women are you know men avoid women dangerous um, no c- clearly not um, and. Um, I mean, the positive examples, there's certainly there's loads of women in, in one and two, who, two kings who, who who model that faithfulness, um, and uh, some of them are queen mothers. Um, others of them are like the widow of Zarapheth. In the wisdom literature, which is probably written in and around this time, you've got, you got um, lady wisdom. So, so it's not at all accurate to say all women are negative uh, casts, uh, ne- ne- characterised negatively. It's just not true. Um, the particular danger, the repeated baddie, is though foreign women, and the issue there isn't their ethnicity, but but the fact that they they worship other gods and therefore lead the Israelites and um, or particularly the kings to worship their gods, and, and that's the, the the main focus there. It, it's their it's it's their idolatrous idolatrousness, I, yeah, um, rather than the fact that they're you know, X Y chromosome, um, and um, or XX for his own. Which is it? Yes. XX. Going, I shouldn't go, yeah, don't, yeah, I shouldn't go <laughs> to biology, should I? Um, and, um, and of course, we are the church. The church is characterised in the New Testament as feminine. She. Um, we're dressed as a bride for our husband. Yes, we're unfaithful. Yes, we're like Goma, Hosea's wife. We're unfaithful. And yet, identity is not in our unfaithfulness our identities and the fact that we're washed clean. And again, spoiler alert, but you know that's that's what happens with Gomer. She, she's drawn back in, and and, and the, those children of adultery are renamed, and and their their identity is no longer in the fact that they're bastards, um, but but the fact that they're you know they they're adopted into Hosea's family. So so there's there's new there's a new identity, new hope. Um, so I think we we need to acknowledge the negativity there and see ourselves in it, and not try and shirk that off but also see there's massive hope here and, and locate our identity in, 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 in who God has declared us to be, not just what we were. And that's true of all our sin, isn't it? I shouldn't keep thinking myself of myself you know, as who I was uh, or I identify myself with the sin I struggle with. I'm not that. I'm in Christ. And there's an ongoing battle. Is that? Do you want to come back? Anything you want to add to that? Cool. Uh, we'll, we'll have a talk on gender and all that at some point. <clears throat> <laughs> that's my start for 10 yes thank you Charlie. So as we're reading these northern prophets how do we how do we read ourselves in in it you know are, are we should we read ourselves as the northern kingdom of israel or you know who are we in the story um it's always helpful to remember whenever we reading the old testament that we're not jews nor are we the northern kingdom of israel the samaritans we're gentiles we're we're the, the nations who are brought, who have been brought in through the new covenant but we're as we see how God relates to His people, whether the south or the north, it's instructive in telling what, is, what the character of our God is like. Who is unchanging, um, and uh, and so we should lean in extra closely when we see um, uh, when we see descriptions of the New Covenant in in in, in these sort of early early forms. Um, that being said, I guess the same heart which beats in the Samaritan beats in mine. You know, my 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 inclination of my heart to adultery, the inclination of my heart to idolatry, my inclination of my heart to injustice. is just here as it is there. It's just there on a specific historic covenant, which me as a Gentile never was. Um, so I guess that's the difference. Um, so if, we, um, if I zoom back to this diagram here. So these are national covenants here. Okay, Those are for the Jews. They weren't given to us Gentiles. These are the ones we're under here, the cosmic ones, um, and the new, because we've got grafted in. Um, but we'll come to that later. Yeah. So we've looked at the northern kingdom, and we, we, we chased and looked at some of, the, some of the prophets in the north, like Elisha, Elijah, Amos, Jonah, Hosea, and then Nahum. Well, let's go back and then let's cover that life in the, southern, in the southern kingdom. And what's confusing about 1 and 2 Kings is that as you read narrative, it's always splitting between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, sort of, um, it does it chronologically. Um, so let's go back. What was life like in the southern kingdom of Judah? And it's fair to say it depends. It depends upon the king on the throne at that particular time. And, and you look at the diagram on your on your handout. You see the different colours there. Uh, some are black, some are bad, like Saul. Uh, some are good, like David, Solomon, meh. Uh, and and so on. It, it, their, their, their reigns varied according to how closely they walked with the Lord. And so the repeated three themes are exactly the same as in the north. Yes, there was idolatry, but there was also fidelity. Yes, there was injustice, but there was also justice. Yes, there was presumption, but there was also humility. It depended on who was there. Um, one of my favourite kings is King Josiah. Here he is. Um, he was made king as a small boy, and uh, he didn't really know what he was doing. He just had various advisors kind of running the kingdom for him, and I enjoy this, this painting with a sort of Burger King crown on his head. Not, uh, Chloe, what would it be like to be ruler of a kingdom age eight? Yeah. yeah. Would you want to run the United Kingdom? Yeah. <laughs> Wrong answer. I mean, so, you, could you could do it. But yeah, I mean, I mean it was a terrifying prospect, um, you know, to, for, for King Josiah to sort of rule God's people mate, as a boy. But, but then one day they, they were um, sort of clearing out um, stuff in the temple and they, they, they knocked through a wall in the temple and they discovered the book of the law. What's this? don't know. Should we, should we give it a read and see what it says? Yeah, let's do that. And they're like, isn't that incredible? Um, as you can see from the diagram here, where, where King um, Josiah is, he's near the, near the end on the right-hand side. But b- because of the long, evil reign of King Manasseh, no one had even knew what the law was. They'd forgotten it. They didn't know what the penchant was. They'd just forgotten God's law and clue. they just found it ad hoc when doing a bit of renovation. And so they started reading it, and, and Josiah was cut to the heart. He's like, oh, yeah, we should obey this law. There's lot, some pretty good laws here for me as king. I, I think we should, we should obey these, and, and that's what he did. Josiah began a whole bunch of reforms, tearing down uh, I, I, uh, Asherah poles and, and uh, reinstating the Passover because they forgot all the feasts. They forgot all the things they should be doing as the people of God. Uh, king Josiah was a great king. Tragically, he died in battle. Um, he wasn't, in the end, the, the serpent crusher we've been looking for since Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15. Uh, but he's one of the greatest kings of Israel. And so the, the, basically the life in the southern kingdom, it was either great or terrible, depending on who was on the throne. And so in this period, um, the, the, the southern prophets on the, on the final page here, they, they also acted like enforcers. Um, Micah is one of my one of my favorite prophets. And um, he, he's classic. You know, he, he does all these things. He, he calls his people to listen. Listen to me. He calls people to repent, warning about the covenant curses falling upon them if, if, they, if they continue in idolatry and injustice and, and presumption. But then he always gives them hope. He, he, at the end of each of these three cycles throughout the book, he ends on a note of hope, hope of a Davidic shepherd king who had come to restore all things. He closes the book by asking this question: Who is like the Lord? He's incomparable. The name Micah means that. Who is like the Lord? Um, if you're terrified by the Book of Isaiah, start with Micah because he's basically a contemporary. His message is basically the same, and it's really short. Um, Isaiah, on the other hand, flipping complicated. Um, really cool, you know. Everyone knows like the, the really famous bits, but but you know, really quite hard to, to work out what's going on. Generally. First half judgment destruction, with glimpses of hope, uh, like the root of Jesse, and uh, and various other things, um, uh, and it ends with this long uh, proclamation of salvation and restoration um, to God's people in, in Babylon. Um, so that's the the the, uh, the earlier prophets. Um, the the later prophets, oh, you might know this this famous image in, in Isaiah of the. Um, the child lying down, you know, I love this painting here, this girl putting her hand into a hole, you know, this is where the, 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 uh, the adder's nest is. And, she, you know, humanity is so in touch with creation once more that a child can put their hand into an adder's nest and they're absolutely fine. The lion will lie down with the lamb. All that famous imagery, again, just as like we saw in Hosea, um, Isaiah 2 said, it's going to be a cosmic redemption when this Davidic king comes, when the root of Jesse comes. All those things are going to happen. Uh, later prophets in the southern kingdom, like Habakkuk and Zephaniah, at this point that the threat of Babylon's really looming. Exile is looming. And, and the prophet Habakkuk, he just kept proclaiming, the righteous shall live by faith, the need to call on God, to, to, to depend on God, even in the midst of uncertainties. But we might know the end of the story, this fourth point. Despite all the life in the northern and southern kingdoms, it ends in death. It ends in exile. And King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who succeeds the um, Babylonian kingdom, they take over from the, the Assyrian kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. He starves them to death. It's horrific scenes. He destroys their temple. And the prophet Jeremiah gives us perhaps the clearest insight to what life was like in these times. Um, Jeremiah warned uh, many of the same things Isaiah and Micah warned uh, the generation before. He himself, Jeremiah, was, was rejected personally by God's people. He kept on saying the same things as before uh, and, and people did not want to hear it. They threw him down a well. They didn't want to hear his message. And Jeremiah says, because of your sins, Judah must drink the cup of God's wrath, you're going to be sent eastwards into exile. And there you'll be for 70 years. And so if you want to fill in these boxes, what, what are God's people like at this time? Well, they're decimated. There's so many are killed. They're emasculated, literally, as many, of, most or many of the young men uh, had their uh, balls cut off. Uh, so when they're transported over to Babylon to serve in the courts there, uh, they couldn't then propagate their line. Daniel uh, and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego almost certainly were made eunuchs. Um, and so it looks like the end of the line, at the end of the Davidic hope at least, if all the senior male um, leaders are, are unable to, to pass on their, their seed. And of course, God's people are slaves, <coughs> slaves in Babylon, uh, what is God's place? Well, now it's far away. They're, they're in exile. They're under foreign rule. And God's presence, well, the temple is destroyed. And where instead they were supposed to bring blessing to the nations, now they're dishonoured by the nations. So it's a pretty bleak uh, period of history. Uh, but there's always hope. And the question is, where... In the midst of these bleak times, where is confidence to be found? And and this is kind of what Jeremiah does. At chapters one to twenty-five, bleak messages of, of of warning against Jerusalem because because Babylon is coming. If you don't repent, and then you get these two sections of narrative, future hope, and, and the actual fall of Jerusalem, and then in the in the final chapters you you have this um, prophecy against the nations of vindication. But but where is where is the locus of uh, Isaiah's confidence and Jeremiah's confidence. Where, where are they looking for their hope? Well, again, we're going to do a bit of group work. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31 and verse 31, 31, 31. Very important verse to remember. I'm going to read verses 31 to 33, and then I want you to turn to your pairs and ask yourself, what is new about the new covenant. Okay? Classic essay question. If you ever go to theological college, you will be asked to write an essay on what is new about the new covenant. OK, so this is your primer. Verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by their hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What's new about the new covenant? It's your pairs. I'm sure if we wouldn't have spotted everything there, but we can help one another out. Um, just answers from the floor. What is new about the new covenant? Loz's hand is straight up. Look at that. That's absolutely right. Yeah, you, you, we don't need prophet, priests and kings anymore to, 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 you know, amongst God's people because we'll have one who mediates. All of that to everyone equally. I'm not a priest. I'm not a king. But we are a kingdom of priests. We're a kingdom, a nation of, uh, of kings, of prophets. We're all prophets. Absolutely right. Yeah, the least of them to the greatest will all know me. Um, Joel says something similar, didn't he? The spirit will come down on your men and your women, uh, your your servants and and your old men. It, it, it's going to be uh, no distinction. Absolutely right. That's really really important. Anything else? What's new about the new covenant? Yeah, the covenant is all about Jesus. You're right. And notice uh, these verses, verse thirty three. What the word repeat is I will, I will. Uh, verse thirty four, I will. Um, it, it's God doing these things. And, and of course, you're absolutely right. Jesus says, spoiler alert, two weeks time. Um, Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. We, we remember that at the Lord's Supper this morning, didn't we? Um, Jesus is the one, is the God, uh, the son, the king, the Davidic king who enacts this new covenant. But he is the one who's doing it. I will do it. I will do it. And that's different, isn't it, to the Mosaic covenants? Um, Moses splattering the blood on them and they said, we will do it. We will obey all the words of this law. We will do it. It's different. Anything else new about the new covenant? Brilliant. B, yes, God preempts, He knows their wickedness, their future sins, and says they're going to be forgiven or of it. Absolutely right. Anything else? Yeah, the law has changed. Thank you, Bill. So the law is no longer external, just a tick box exercise. The law is internalized. So the God's people desire to obey this law. They don't feel they have to keep this law in order to keep up, to keep in with God. They desire to live this law because it, God has changed their hearts uh, to do so. Yeah, do, do a little Google search of the word heart in Romans, and it's significant. As in how Paul writes about the heart in chapters one to three, um, uh, and, and sinful effects on the heart, and then how the spirit's been poured into our hearts by grace so that we desire to live the, uh, obey the law from the heart. Um, in fact, the law has been repudiated and replaced by the Spirit. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's absolutely there. Paul, Paul clearly studied this um, in great depth. One other thing I noticed, um, uh, verse 31, uh, God says, with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, there's a reunification. And, again, spoiler alert for a couple of weeks' time, but why in the book of Acts does it mark that, God, that the gospel goes out from Judea to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. <laughs> God is calling in his ethnic people of Israel and also the Gentiles too. Um, it's emphatic here that this covenant will not be like the Mosaic covenant. And I just want to keep emphasizing this. So turn over to chapter 33, <clears throat> verse 17. We looked to this passage when we looked at God's covenant with Noah. But as I read this, uh, 17 to uh, 26. As I read this sort of chunk, these three paragraphs, try and um, shout out if you. This is an interactive exercise. Shout out if you can the covenant it refers to. Okay. You ready? It's a game. <coughs> Verse 17. For this is what the Lord says: David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings. To burn grain offerings and present sacrifices. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with day and my covenant with night, so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time. Brilliant. Then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites. Who are priests ministering before me can be broken, and they will no longer have a descendant to reign on my throne. I will make the descendants of David my servant, and the Levi Levites who minister before me, as countless in the stars in the sky, as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Yeah, we all got that one. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people are saying, The Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not made my covenant with day and night and established the laws of heaven and earth, Noah. then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Davidic and Abrahamic. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Okay, you saw that little exercise there. So there is Jeremiah writing to his people in the midst of exile. Where is the locus of their hope? Look at the diagram. It's the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Levitical covenant, the Davidic covenant, they're, they're like the, the, the foundations upon which is built the new covenant. Whereas what is not the locus of their hope? The Adamic and the Mosaic. Why? Because it requires a, a, a fullness of obedience, which is just their hearts are just not capable of. And, and again, as you read through Jeremiah, Jeremiah is a complicated book. Um, by the way, I recommend these Bible project uh, sort of um, diagrams. We won't look at this now, but they're, 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 if you think visually, they're brilliant in trying to get your mind around, uh, mind around these things. But the, um, all the way through Jeremiah, the emphasis is the heart. Guys, your hearts, he says to his people, your hearts aren't circumcised. Your hearts aren't washed. Your hearts aren't clean. Ezekiel says the same things. We'll some come to that next week. You need a new covenant. You need a new heart. So as I close, I've got two little applications for us, both from Jeremiah. One of the, if you turn to Jeremiah thirty-two, just back a page. If um, if your city, right? Imagine you're you're living in a walled city called Jerusalem. It's under siege. You're surrounded by Babylonians, hungry for your blood. Um, there's nothing to eat. You've got water, but there's nothing to eat. Okay? So much so that people are resorting to cannibalism in the city. There's nothing to eat. You, know, you, you don't think you're going to ask very long. Do you think that would be a good time to do a bit of real estate um, and, and to buy up some land for yourself? I don't think so. Jeremiah thinks it is. Jeremiah decides in the midst of this siege, the most sensible thing for him to do is to buy a field in Jerusalem. And it's it's a it's an enacted prophecy. It's, a, it's he's saying, I have hope that this land here will be restored. That this land, which is utterly valueless now because Babylon is about to invade and take it, I have hope that this kingdom, will, this land, will prevail. This kingdom will prevail. And just just to close, a little by way of application, uh, invest in the kingdom now. Um, as Johnny said this morning he looked at esther as christians we 're going to be hated we 're going to be opposed we 're going to be a minority. The temptation will be to invest anywhere else to invest where it looks like things are on the up and as things look harder and harder for christians it 's going to be tempted to not invest. Follow Jeremiah, invest in the kingdom, and you will be vindicated and uh, jeremiah thirty two ends with uh, being promised that the line uh, the line of David. Uh, will not be snuffed out. Yes, many of them were emasculated. Many of them got the scissors. But somehow, the line of Jesse, the line of David, was not snuffed out. Somehow it survived the exile. And so we should not just invest in the kingdom, but invest in the king. Because our king has beaten death. That's good news, isn't it? Turns person next to you, have a bit of Q&A, and then we'll see. So, if you're with someone who always asks great questions but then never raises their hand to say it, this is your chance to nudge them so that we, we hear, um, hear some new questions. No. So, uh, yeah, it would be lovely, wouldn't it? if <laughs> He does buy a field for 70 shekels. G, g, uh, yeah, 30. The 30 shekels of silver is significant, though, um, because it's the same price which um, uh, Joseph was sold in slavery for by his brothers. And Prophet Je- uh, Zechariah um, was also um, sold. Uh, he, he, yeah, he got given a paltry pay uh, for his shepherding work. And that points forward to Christ. Did, so did he? Did he? Did he? Can we look that up? I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't studied Hosea in a while. Um, let's chase that. You chase that up. And while we have the next question, Jay. What's the number? I'm for 30. That would be cool, wouldn't it? We've seen throughout the series that the Bible has lots of hyperlinks, just like just like uh, Wikipedia, and everything's linked to everything else. So it wouldn't surprise me if that pops up more often. Johnny's got a question. Yes, you should have put your hand up earlier, Johnny. This is uh, yeah. So um, another new thing about the New Covenant is that it's unbreakable because it's not down to us. Um, sorry if that wasn't um, if we didn't spell that out. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, if, if, uh, if God is saying, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it, well, he's going to do it. He's not going to fail, is he? He's the Lord. Um, whereas if, if our salvation was on us, or it was on us to keep ourselves in God's love through our obedience, we wouldn't do it because we're idolatrous, because we're unjust, um, because we're proud. Uh, what is new about the new covenant is that it's unbreakable, much like the Noahic, Abrahamic, Levitical, Davidic, um, because those uh, covenants were never annulled, yeah. So James' question is, you know, how much of Jeremiah 33 has been fulfilled? Uh, is this now or not yet? Well, obviously, when Jeremiah wrote this, it was definitely a not yet. It, it's um, in that day, or verse 31, the days are coming. Um, Jesus is the one who says, I'm going I'm to usher in this covenant through my blood. Um, so he's the one who broke this covenant. And, and when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, all this happened. Um, uh, I don't think it's saying, you know, universal, everyone saved. I think he's saying amongst his people, all will have the law written on their hearts. Oh, I see, yes, I understand. So verse 34, no longer will they teach their neighbour to say, to know the Lord, for they all know him. I, um, yeah, two things there. Clearly in the New Testament, God says it's good for the church to have teachers. It's kind of my job. And um, that's a good thing. It, 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 and although in the new creation, I kind of been out of a job. Uh, some of you have useful jobs, like architects, um, and you're going to have a job in the new creation. Uh, nurses and, and teachers, less so. Um, we're going to have uh, less use, and so we're going to have to we're going to have to retrain. It's fine. But we've got eternity to do that. Um, but but yeah, I guess in the new creation, we're all going to know God perfectly, and we won't even know teachers. But but even now, as we enjoy the fruits of the new covenants, in between, in this sort of overlap of the ages. Um, I think we can see some of this now in that, from the least, from the least to the highest. We all know the Lord, um, yeah. So I think I think largely this is fulfilled in Christ, but ultimately when when He returns, in that, yeah, we'll know God perfectly without a hint of sin. Okay. So Johnny suggests verse thirty-four also includes like the the, the, the finalization of the canon. There's so that so um, obviously Jeremiah then had half the Bible, whereas we get the whole the whole caboodle. Yeah, it, it, it could it could be that yeah. Yeah, we've got the we've got the the end we've got the punchline to the joke. We've got the whole um, we've got the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy, not just the first bit. Yeah, got it. Yeah, it could be that. Could be that. So Sam's heard in terms of apologetics, um, this used to describe why non-Christians have morals, or all people have morals. Yeah, this wouldn't be the text I'd go to for that. Uh, I think Romans one uh, and Romans two are the, probably the obvious places to go um, where. Um, yeah, God has placed on our... Con- even, the, even even the Gentiles have have this, have this a conscience um, which we sin against. Uh, the person who knows nothing of the Lord, if they murder someone, even if they've never heard murder is wrong, they still are sinning against what they know to be innately right and wrong. I don't think this passage is talking about that. I think it's talking about uh, believers that knowing the Lord in that sense. I think it's a right truth, wrong text. Father God, thank you that your spirit has come. Thank you that your king has mediate mediated every blessing to us and has written the law on our hearts. So Father, I pray, Lord, that we would not just know the truth and, and I appreciate tonight is, is largely informational, but Lord, we desire that these truths would in the end um, be transformational for us, that, that we would know that your love for us is unbreakable because you have done it. You have poured out your blood in the new covenant uh, for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.